Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, A Servant of Jesus. So let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 to 17, as we join Dr. John now. I'm reading 1 Timothy 1, 12 to 17. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. It was the great French philosopher, mathematician, and physicist, Blaise Pascal, who lived in the 17th century, and he wrote the following lines. He said, All men seek happiness without exception. They all aim at this goal, however different the means they use to attain it. What makes these go to war and those bide at home is the same desire, which both classes cherish, though the point of view varies. The will never makes the smallest move, but with this as its goal. It is the motive of all the actions of all men, even those who contemplate suicide, he said. See, the pathways that each of us choose to get there to happiness is so different. The goal is always the same. We want our lives to mean something, to be significant. We want to be content. It's what we call happiness. Some try to get there by the pathway of pleasure, trying to ensure that they deny themselves of nothing, and still others try to get there through self-denial. Others say, I want to get there by achievement and by accomplishing something that's going to outlive my time or make others' lives better. Others through wealth, still others by fame and receiving applause from others. But whatever pathway we choose, the goal of having meaning and contentment, what Pascal called happiness, is exactly the same in everyone. Now, we've been studying 1 Timothy, and we found at the beginning a warning that the Christian church must take a strong stand against false teaching and an equally strong stand in favor of the great doctrinal truths of the Bible. Today, we're going to find that Paul gives reasons for that. He wants to say that there's a world of difference, that is, how you live between the truth and error. And that difference is contentment or not, satisfaction or not, happiness or not. See, before we go further, let's find out what today's passage is about. The ultimate purpose of life and the ultimate joy anyone can discover in life is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12 again. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. I want you to notice the last word in that passage. It's the word service. It's the Greek word deacon. See, I know we often think about deacons as an office in the church, and the idea of deacons, well, I think it goes back to Acts chapter 6, when the church was beginning, the deacons were chosen to serve food for aging widows who had nothing. That's how deacons began. They were servants. 
The example to all deacons is the example of Jesus, who in in John 13 is found to be washing his disciples' feet. And so then being a deacon or a servant is the goal of the Christian life. In other words, Jesus thought that, you know, the highest and the happiest place which we can attain to is to humble ourselves in servanthood of the most medial kind. That's why he said he had come not to be served, but rather to serve, to serve others. I said that's a doubtful proposition to many. Would you rather be a deacon or a movie star? I mean, many would say, definitely a movie star. And that admission is why most of us are unhappy. You'll never be happy or content until you're involved in serving Christ Jesus at great personal cost. And then when, like Paul, you say, you know, I've been imprisoned for Christ and I've been beaten and I've gone without proper sleep and I've been mistreated. In fact, I've suffered in this service and yet I've learned in all these situations to be content. See, until you buy into this, being a servant of Jesus, your life is always going to be filled with complaints. You're going to be deeply dissatisfied. It was St. Augustine who said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. I mean, look around you. That's true. Why do you think people who win the lottery have a lower level of satisfaction than the general population? Know what Paul says here in verse 12. My greatest reason for thanks is that Jesus Christ has appointed me to his service. Okay, but here comes the difficult part. He did it because Paul was judged faithful. But how was he judged faithful? Well, because Jesus gave him, look at the first part of the verse, Jesus gave him strength. Notice then this statement, the ultimate purpose and joy in life is to be a servant of Jesus Christ and to be so because of the strength of God that is work in our lives. In other words, Jesus gives us the power and the desire to be a faithful servant of his. And when he does that, we're truly grateful. We become thankful. Finally, our lives have purpose and meaning. And someone might say, you know, I'm still not convinced. But if that's you, hang in there with me. Look at verse 13. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Here's Paul's testimony. But before I review it, would you just cheat a little and look ahead to verse 15? So here's a question for you. Do you think that's hyperbole? Is Paul really the worst sinner that there was, or does he just feel that way? And here's what I think. I think Paul really was the worst sinner there ever was. I think it's literally true. The first time we encounter Paul in the Bible, we find him giving approval to the stoning of a deacon named Stephen. He's the first Christian martyr. And the very first time in history that any Christian was killed, it was Paul who approved of it. And from then, he went from house to house, dragging off men, women, children, putting them into prison. He had many put to death. He tortured others, trying to get them to blaspheme and curse Christ. But you might say, haven't other people done the same and even worse? Well, let's allow Paul to speak for himself. First notice, he calls himself a blasphemer. You know, Paul was an expert in the Jewish scriptures in the Old Testament. He was brilliant and, I'm sure, could out-debate anybody. And yet, according to his own testimony, he didn't combine his knowledge of Scripture with faith, but in his own twisted way, believed that through rigid self-discipline and keeping every detail of the law, God would take notice of how upright he was and then would be in a situation where God would be obliged to favor Paul. And that was blasphemy because he took a very low view of God 
in that he actually believed he'd be good enough for God. That's blasphemy. And that led Paul to a second sin. He became a persecutor. And he thought that anyone who trusted in Christ for salvation became, you know, in his brilliant and twisted mind, an enemy of God. And that led to a third sin. Paul says, I was insolent. That means it was impossible to correct Paul. After Paul spent, you know, the day imprisoning Christians, destroying their lives, he would go home into his own neighborhood as a man whose self-discipline would have been admired, you know, who patted little kids on the heads in the neighborhood, took care of the broken fence, mowed the lawn, went to bed, slept soundly, without the slightest bit of conscience troubling him, for he felt that he had done God a favor. He was not like, you know, an out-of-control brute or the man who's cruel for the sake of being cruel. Paul was reasoned. He was well-spoken. He was gracious. He was an admired man. And yet behind all of that, he was a monster. It's worse than a suicide bomber, for Paul acted out of great consideration. See, I don't believe the church has ever seen such a monster before. Now listen to what Paul says. He says, but I acted in ignorance and in unbelief. He says, in truth, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't understand who God was. I didn't understand the true intent of the scripture. And I certainly didn't have any faith at all. And because of this, how incredible is it? Because I was in this way an object of God's mercy. I remember some years ago preaching a sermon on grace, and I used the example of John Newton, the slave trader, who became a Christian and the man who who wrote Amazing Grace. And after the sermon, a woman came to me, and she was very upset that the cross meant that, that this man could be forgiven. She said it was unfair, it was unjust. See, clearly this woman was not thinking about her own sin. She simply looked at Newton's sin and said, that man should never be forgiven. And she thought, however, in her own life, if her own sins were evaluated, she should be forgiven. And I think that's thinking just a bit like Paul. Paul was not thinking about his own sins. He thought only about his own righteousness. Being that we celebrate Thanksgiving this month, we wanted to make sure to express our gratitude for you, our listeners. Your encouragement, prayers, gifts all mean so much. We're also grateful for your notes, letting us know that Back of the Bible Canada is impacting your daily walk with Christ. Sarah wrote, Dr. John's stories illustrate so clearly how to live out the truths of Scripture. Jordan wrote, your message was so timely for my heart. And special thanks to you for making this Bible teaching ministry possible. And don't forget to request your 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. John's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. It's our free Bible resource this month. Or if you'd like to make a gift, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Verse 14 reads, And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The Greek word for overflowed might now be the second time in 1 Timothy that Paul invents a word. He doesn't just say that grace flowed to him. He doesn't say it overflowed. He actually says it super overflowed. 
You know, I, I typed super overflowed into my computer, you know, and Microsoft Word immediately put a red line under it. It said, that's not a word. Well, I said to my computer, I know, but it is now. See, there's an image here, if you will. The image of waves pouring into a boat, you know, a storm. Waves come pouring in. You're bailing and you have a pump, but you can't keep up. It's a super overflow. It's so great that it swamps the boat. And that, says Paul, is what happened to him. His monstrously sinful boat was swamped when God's waves of mercy and grace super overflowed. And no matter how much he wanted to stop it, he was powerless. And the reason Paul tells that story is to tell all of us that we have something in common with him. For each one of us, there's an unlikely pathway that leads to the ultimate of all joys. I know this is going to seem counterintuitive, but you can't discover joy until you discover your own ignorant wretchedness. And I'll say this, until you find out not just that you're a sinner, but they become astonished at just how great your sins are. Until that happens, you'll never find your way to being a servant of Jesus. See, the pathway to joy is the pathway that leads first to this appalling realization that I'm rightly condemned before God. But that realization leads to a second even more frightening than the first. And the second realization is the invasion of mercy and grace. And just so that we understand what we're talking about, mercy and grace, according to verse 14, leads to faith and love in Christ Jesus. In short, when God pours out his kindness into our lives, he does it in a very peculiar way. First, he does it by giving us faith in Jesus. You know, faith is just a word for trust. See, for the first time, I begin to believe that Jesus died for my sins, and I trust that his death on the cross is payment for my sins. And the second way in which grace and mercy flow to me is that I now respond to Christ in love. See, the kind of love that's so great that I would gladly abandon all that I now hold on to and give myself utterly and completely to him. It kind of works this way. You know, the week before Kathy and I got married, I remember her saying that she was going to take my bachelor's status and trash it. Yeah, I, I was a bit shocked, mainly because you know, I was kind of proud of being single and independent and a bachelor. But when I thought about it, and said, yeah, she's definitely going to, to trash that which I had formerly loved, but I wouldn't have it any other way because, you know, to have her is so much greater than to have that former status. And that's what Paul said. In Philippians 3, he says that his former status as a Pharisee, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, of the tribe of Benjamin, one who kept the legalistic law perfectly, he called this rubbish. He said it was dung, it was crap, for he had given all of it up so that he might gain Christ. Look at the first part of verse 15. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, five times in the pastoral epistles, Paul uses that same phrase. The phrase came to signify something in the early church. So to say, the saying is trustworthy. Well, that was code for saying, this is a doctrine, or this is the kind of truth that we have come to know and preach. This is truth for all time, something that's true for every people, every culture, every language, something that never changes and never can change. And what is it? It is the objective basis upon which everything stands. This truth is the truth that is central to our faith. Jesus Christ came to save sinners, and that's very good news. 
If you today know that you're a sinner, it's good news. And you are a sinner, even if you don't know it. You've broken God's law, so have I. You know, for a number of years, every morning in my devotions, I would read the Ten Commandments. And every time I read them, I would remind myself that I stand condemned, but Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners just like me. Please hear what all that means. First, when we say he came into the world, we mean that he has always existed. He's the eternal Son of God. It means when we say Jesus, we understand that we're speaking of God the Son. Secondly, when we say he entered into the world, we confess that he came for a reason, and that reason was not for people who think they're fine and okay. You know, if this day you conclude you're not a sinner, there'll be no grace, there'll be no mercy flooding into your boat. You'll continue to sail along until you come to the rapids and the falls, which is the land of eternal death and eternal judgment, eternal damnation. I've had conversations with all manner of people who deny their sins, and they think that's to say, you know, I'm a great sinner. Well, that would be to say something abhorrent. But if that is you, well, then you'd have to conclude that you need no Savior. Hence, Jesus is not for you. But if you say, I'm a sinner, then hear me. You're the one Jesus came for. Now, I need to tell you that the next part of verse 15 has always puzzled me. Look, I know how Paul can say, I was the worst of sinners, but how can it be that in verse 15, he uses the present tense? He says, of whom I am, present tense the worst. Yes, he was the worst then, but how can he continue to be the worst today? I mean, after all, when we read 1 Timothy, we come to the end of Paul's life, and he says in verse 12 that he served Christ faithfully. How could he say he's the worst of sinners? You know, years ago, I was discussing that problem while sitting at home, and my son Jonathan, who was still younger then and living at home, said, Dad, I've got the answer for you. And with that, he went to his computer and he copied out a quote that he had kept on it, a quote from the great English preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, probably the best and greatest preacher of the 1800s. And here's what Spurgeon said. He said, I reckon that when I sin, I sin worse than many of you because I sin against better training than many of my hearers received in their youth. But even for such, Christ died. I think I now understand Paul. He's the man who wrote close to half of our New Testament, and he received a greater insight into the mystery of Christ than any man before him. James 3 verse 1 says that those who teach will be judged with greater strictness because when they sin, they sin against a greater insight. And so Paul says, I started out as the worst, and I'm still the worst. But grace has been flowing into my boat, and it just never stops. Verse 16, but I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in him for eternal life. So here's an amazing truth. Let me illustrate it. A few years ago, there was a television commercial that showed a car in which a jeweler in the back seat made a precise cut in a diamond as the car was being driven along a rough road. Well, what was to be our reaction? Well, since I'll never need to cut a diamond in a car, this car is going to be more than sufficient for me. And that's what Paul is communicating to us. We're supposed to say, look, I'm not as sinful as Paul, so the grace that he received would be sufficient for me as well. Paul, seeing that Christ had a strategy in saving him, that sounds a little like this. From now on, everyone who's ever thought it was impossible for them with all their sins that they could find mercy, they'd look at Paul and say, look, if he found mercy, I can too. 
Is someone that terrible found grace? Then I, who am a sinner in my own right, I too can find grace. See, when we surrender to Christ, our lives become a trophy of Christ. He takes us from being rogues and hell-bound sinners and transforms us to being completely contented and faithful servants of Jesus Christ who serve because of the strength he gives us. It's a startling transformation, but we become a trophy that not only reflects that he is good, but also more. Our lives serve as a reminder to others that grace and mercy is also possible for them. Now to verse 17. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. God is the king of all time, both now and eternity. He's the one who forever lives, the immortal one. He's invisible, that is, no human eye can see him, but that's good. For the visible things are passing away, but the invisible ones, they remain forever. And this is the only God, and to this one belongs all esteem belongs all the greatest accolades that we can offer. We began by saying that every person seeks joy and happiness. We said that it comes only by being a servant of Jesus. We said we become servants in the most amazing way, by admitting that we're sinners and by placing our trust fully in Jesus and in his cross. And that leads us to our conclusion. The result of all of this is purpose and joy. And for that, we worship him and glory not in ourselves, but in him alone. Amen. Thanks, John. Let me get to it here. The term sin, it seems to be increasingly disappearing from the language of our culture, and in fact, even churches. Can we ever really come to an understanding of salvation, in fact, even the joy of our salvation, without coming to terms with sin? You know, there's an interesting popular preacher in our day today, Ben, that argues, you know, we don't need to talk about sin. People already by nature feel sinful. To which the Bible responds, no, they don't. By nature, we feel proud of ourselves. By nature, we justify ourselves. So I'm going to say this, until we come to acknowledge the depth of our own sin, we will never seek a savior until we're so overwhelmed that I am sinful beyond measure. I will never come to God in desperation saying, save me for I am lost. Thanks so much, John. And remember, join us again next week as we continue our series, Upholding the Truth, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada broadcasts the teaching of the Bible so that people might grow in their understanding of God's infinite grace and the gift of their salvation. Well, this month in churches and around family tables, many will name the gifts received and added to that perhaps a prayer of praise. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. In preparation for a year of gratitude, we invite you to request your free 2022 scripture calendar based on Dr. Neufeld's book, Making the Most of Your Salvation. The calendar includes inspiring images of the cross, reflections upon the promises in God's word, inspirational quotes from Dr. John, and our daily Bible reading plan. Quantities are limited, so to receive your free copy today or to send a gift, 
To support this Bible teaching ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.